This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Hey folks, if you're just joining us, welcome. It's time for TGIF DCT. It's Friday, it's 12 noon Eastern, and so it's our opportunity to get together here on Clubhouse with all sorts of friends who connect here each Friday talking about a range of topics related to decentralized clinical trials. My name is Craig Lipset, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet. And we have this club, as I mentioned, each week. If you are new to Clubhouse or new to this topic, you can tap Decentralized Trials in the upper left of your screen. From there, you can follow the club so you'll be notified when we gather. You can scroll ahead and see some of the upcoming topics we have in the weeks ahead. But you can also scroll back in time because we've had replays on over the past year. You will be able to find replays of conversations dating back throughout 2022 and even a couple a little before then. These conversations are driven by you, our audience, the community that share with us the topics that they're most interested in exploring. These topics have ranged from the the business side to the technology and data interoperability, patient perceptions and experiences, um, business continuity strategies in these unpredictable environments. We've talked about talent. We've talked about regulation and privacy. It's such a dynamic field that some of these areas we have to keep coming back to such as the approval of the omnibus spending bill late last year, which included some provisions around recommendations for decentralized trials coming out of agencies in the U.S. government, or the request for information that's open right now from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy that's looking for insight from the community about clinical trials and emergency situations, including where decentralized trials fits in. Also late last year was the recommendations coming out from the European Medicines Agency. And so it is such a dynamic space that we need to keep gathering and keep sharing and keep exploring these topics together. That's my long-winded way of saying that if you have a topic that's important to you, a curiosity to you, an interest to you, let us know. And we'll be sure to get that topic added to the schedule. That's where these themes come from. If you have news or uh, research yourself that you're putting out that you want to be able to share, like we're doing with John today, just let us know and we'll also get you added to the conversation. Just let me know, Jane Miles, Amir Kalali, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Um, remember as well, while Amir is on vacation, I have to remember to say this, Jane, Click around in the room, follow, check out the profiles of other people that are here with you, not just uh, those of us, uh, Jane, myself, John, who are showing as speakers right now, but clicking around the room at the rest of the folks that have taken some time to join here. They share your interests um, and they could be good connections for you, whether here on Clubhouse or jumping over to LinkedIn or wherever you like to connect with folks today. Jane, how in the world are you today? Doing great over here in the West Coast, having my first coffee. Don't even ask how long I've been up, but uh, excited to talk about this and learn what was discovered in this research study around patient preference. Very excited. So thanks for including me. It's a great topic and a great setup, my friend. We um, uh, all, uh, all of us in this space 
use language speaking about trying to do right by patients, improving patient factors around uh, experience and access, recruitment, retention, uh, and other attributes. But so often we need data to back up these assumptions. Um, many of us are proactively doing the right thing in speaking to patients in our disease areas before we're planning, designing, and executing a study, which of course makes a ton of sense. But we all benefit from baseline data to understand where there are differences around expectations and population levels. Um, and this helps us with our, not just study specific strategies, but our enterprise strategies as we're figuring out what types of approaches we need to be taking to do right by people. As it relates to participant experience in clinical trials, as it relates to decentralized approaches in trials, these types of data um, come out periodically, but there is a certain freshness that's needed to them because as, as an ecosystem, our, our experiences and preferences shift and change. I would speculate that people's willingness or interest to use video for a physician visit today versus last year versus five years ago looks radically different because of all of the changes we've all been managing in the world today. So with that, it's, um, it's my pleasure to welcome our guest this week, John Meyer. Uh, John is the co-founder and managing member of the Life Sciences Strategy Group. Welcome to the conversation, John. Yeah, hi, Craig. Thanks for having me today. And it's nice to meet you as well, Jane. And like you, I am on the wet coast as well. So it's a pleasure to be here. I hope you're uh, starting to dry out a bit. I have to say here on the East Coast, we, we should be seeing snow right now. Here in the Northeast, we have a, 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 we're missing a snow this winter, but we cannot complain about precipitation being on the East Coast. Yeah, it's rainy, but it's just it's just the usual rain, not your West Coast rain this uh, this time of year. Yeah, we've had had a good go of it, but uh, thanks for having me here today. I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about some of the research we've just conducted. Uh, we've got some some great information. I've got some great information to share with you all today. I'm really looking forward to it, and it's such a great opportunity, John, to have you here, not just to um, hear your perspectives and your takeaways from the research that was done, but have this opportunity for the audience uh, to be able to listen to this and intersect and share their questions, their experiences uh, around this important work that you've been doing. Just by way of context, John, what kind of research do you usually do? Is this a new area for you? Yeah, so for over 20 years, our firm has been conducting voice of the customer research and doing strategic consulting in the biopharmaceutical services industry. So our primary clients are CROs that, you know, top 10, top 20 global CROs, the, the big CDMOs, drug discovery companies, uh, decentralized clinical trial, trial technology providers, uh, medical device companies. So anything that's related to the development of, of novel medications, medicines, helping patients, uh, we provide a lot of the research and strategy that helps these various service providers uh, really serve the biopharmaceutical and related industry. So we're talking to scientists at top pharmaceutical companies. We're interviewing physicians and ultimately developing strategies and recommendations for our clients that can help optimize services, improve care. Uh, and as part of that, we do reach out to the patient community because obviously uh, companies like big clinical CROs need to interface with patients. They need to make the patient journey better for their biopharma clients. And, and that's where we step in. Is this, um, is this theme of patient preference in clinical trials in general a relatively new one for you, given the, the scope of uh, various research you've been doing for years? We've been doing a lot of patient research over the last 20 years, but specifically related to decentralized clinical trials, it's new. And really, the, the genesis of this research was the fact that we couldn't really find any published information, any published data on patient satisfaction with decentralized elements of clinical trials. 
we felt that was a void in the market. It was a great place to put some of our energies into and to collect some data and then make that available to the market. So there's lots of information about patient satisfaction with clinical trials, but specifically related to decentralized approaches and what's working for patients, uh, what's the benefits they're receiving, does it move the needle on our need for more patient and, and population involvement in clinical research? Well, I like the way you're, uh, you're describing this as research that can explore decentralized methods and decentralized elements. This is really the way so much implementation is happening today and speaks to a lot of the nuances around uh, patient preference that can get lost if we just use really vague overarching terms like, do you like decentralized clinical trials or not? So this is certainly very helpful. John, what kind of methods did you uh, deploy here? Is this uh, like an IVR survey? Was this online? What did this look like? So we developed our own uh, internet survey and we fielded this with 800 people of which 360 of the 800 have participated in one or two clinical trials within the last year or two. And then about 440 people that had not had, that have never participated in a clinical trial. So we really wanted to avoid those folks that are maybe professional participants and really get that, that, that person that's done a trial, been in one or two trials, as well as those folks that really haven't participated in a clinical trial, because obviously, the folks who are participating and share their feedback, but an even larger, disproportionately larger population hasn't, you know, gotten over that hurdle. And we want to understand if decentralized approaches can help that. Which it was also, it was also fielded in North America and Europe. So about 50, 50 uh, sample distribution. And we tapped into one of the very large uh, online survey platforms, consumer panel. So we, we did a lot of screening and, and filtered into our survey folks who have participated uh, in a blinded fashion, one or two clinical trials, or have not participated in a clinical trial. Well, that's great to hear. I, first of all, I like that at least there was um, some multi-regional uh, participation. It'll be interesting to see um, what our audience feels about other regions and can we extrapolate or do we have a, a open questions there? But it's also interesting that you were able to find uh, a few hundred trial alumni, recent trial alumni, um, even just using uh, a consumer panel. Um, so I'm sure that was a very large consumer panel yes, population it's millions. To, to, millions, yeah, yes. to pluck out a couple of hundred that have been in trials before. That's great. That's great. So um, the the questions you were asking, well, tell us about you know your um, your objectives in this. What so were you focused on the um, how, the perceptions and the realities in terms yeah. of uh, uh, preference for these different approaches? Let, let me just take you through a sort of a high level outline of, of what we did, and it's it's a very logical flow. So we started off with where people learn about clinical trials. We looked at why they decide to participate and what sort of drives that. We also looked at why they haven't participated in a trial. And, and I'm sure many of you know a lot of these reasons, but nevertheless, we have the data. We then looked at the use of technology in clinical trials. And this is where we're really getting into the meat of the decentralized elements and specifically, you know, how often are they using it? What methods of technology are the easiest for them to use? Um, what do they prefer? And then specifically, how does it impact? How does technology or decentralized elements, and it's not just technology limited, but uh, how do decentralized elements impact their satisfaction with the clinical trial process? And we have some really interesting findings there. And then finally, what are, what are their attitudes towards future participation? How do decentralized approaches and strategies play into their willingness to participate, and even among the population that hasn't participated, would it will it potentially move the needle? So that's that's what we looked at. Hey, John, I'm going to chime in with a question myself because I'm super excited about this. Like I said, what I'm hearing is you were really deliberate about not asking about the trial design and outcomes, but rather the way the patient actually 
participated yes. in the trial. Yes. And I'm really glad you did that because um, I think that maybe I'm jumping too far, but I have heard from some sponsors, they're actually worried about asking patients about their experience because they're afraid they're going to get information that's more about the design and outcomes than methods and participation. So kudos. Um, the other question I have, and maybe you're going to get to this, is how exactly did you define decentralized elements? Because that's a hot topic. Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I can tell you in our survey, we actually listed out what we're classifying as decentralized elements. And basically, it's things like telemedicine visits, keeping electronic patient diaries, wearing devices to collect data, even things like in-home care. So a nurse visit, a nurse administration of a therapy in the patient's home, mailing therapies to the patient's home, using online portals, using online chat, emailing their physician. So anything that's really helping to keep the patient in their home or avoid an in-person physician office or laboratory patient visit. So broadly defined, it's not just technology limited. Excellent. No, I think that's super important, actually, this notion that decentralized trials and decent and digital trials are one and the same when so many of the shifts that are taking place are, are process and people powered, not necessarily simply dropping more technology into studies. And so that separation uh, makes a lot of sense. And as Jane mentioned, uh, this topic of definitions is definitely a hot one. We've dropped the uh, glossary at DTRA.org, and there are a number of efforts out there to try to um, tighten up our language around this notion of what are the, the elements, the tools, the methods in our decentralized trials library. So uh, uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great call out. Thanks for elaborating, John. Yeah, we, we're again, we're focusing on decentralization, not digitalization. Perfect. Perfect. Let's jump into uh, some of the findings here. If, if that sounds okay by you, I'd love to um, hear. Actually, you know, if we could, maybe we should take this, keep this conversation a little uh, systematic. Um, in terms of the population that responded, you mentioned this went out to Europe and to the U.S., is, is the data that we'll be discussing pretty representative of both and within the U.S.? Does it represent a pretty good cross-section of the country? Yeah, it's geographically representative of the United States. It's, it is predominantly Caucasian, so we didn't try to influence the, the ethnicity or the, the demographics. It was really just a representative sample not surprisingly, we do have a very high representation of, of uh, white or Caucasian participants in clinical trials. And I know there's a lot of and a need to make trials more diverse, but that's another topic. Uh, but yes, you can assume this is geographically diverse, representative, and rep, uh, representative of the clinical trial population. Correct. It's a fair point, right? I'm sure there will there will be some that look and say, "Well, it uh, you're, we're over-indexed on Caucasians. There's there's too much white representation here. There's too much white representation in research today." And so that's broadly acknowledged. And and one of the realities here, and perhaps one of the opportunities going forward, as as uh, as we think about remaining gaps in research on this topic in terms of ways that we can better over-index with some of those who have been uh, otherwise underrepresented. Agreed. And, and really, our purpose was to focus on decentralization, not, not uh, ethnic representation in trials for this research. So um, with that caveat, maybe I can take you through some of the, the, the big takeaways from our research. I think that's what the, the group would be most interested in hearing. Let's go there. So let me just step you through. So we started off our research and our survey with where participants and, and the general population learn about clinical trials. And not surprisingly, about a quarter, the, the most mentioned channel or mechanism is through their personal physician. Not surprising. But I guess what's interesting and, and something you may assume is if you look at social media, 
uh, Google searches, the, the internet, as well as clinicaltrials.gov. So I'll call these sort of digital channels. That's about 36% of participants. So even more collectively uh, than their personal physician, people are learning and finding out about clinical trials through social media, you know, digital channels, which I think is probably, I, I would imagine has grown dramatically with the, the pandemic and just such a shift to online channels. So that I think is, is not overly surprising, but, but the fact that it's 36% and, you know, 10% more than even a personal physician, that's, that's pretty compelling. So that was the sort of one of the first big things that we looked at and, and we dug a little deeper as to why folks decide ultimately to participate in a clinical trial. And not surprisingly, more than a third said it's because it was enabling me access to a new treatment option. I understand, we understand that is very important and first and foremost, but, but second, and, and this is probably the surprising one is having flexibility in the, in the trial requirements that was the second most and collectively the most important reason why, pe why people participate. 56% of respondents indicated the reason they participate was flexible trial requirements. And, and you can attribute a lot of that to decentralized approaches and strategies, which was pretty surprising to me uh, how, how important flexibility in, in the requirements of the clinical trial uh, are to participants. So that's I'll, interesting. I'll so this means that people have to be able to understand. See, this is always interesting to us, right? Because for us nerds in clinical trials, we talk about this seven days a week. Our families are exhausted of hearing us talk about these things. But we're always thinking about trials and participation. To an individual, this may be the first time they're ever experiencing cl a clinical trial or even considering one. And so they don't have much to benchmark what yeah. does flexibility mean? Are all clinical trials flexible? Is this one different from what other trials might look like? And the, the other interesting thing about this particular question, flexible trial requirements even superseded physician recommendations. So more people indicated that the primary reason was flexibility, even over their physician's recommendation. Hey, can I dig in on what we mean by flexibility here for just a sec, please? So how did flexibility get defined with respect to trial? We didn't go into a, a huge definition because it was just one option in a question, but that can be inferred that it uh, doesn't require extensive travel. There are, there's flexibility in terms of telemedicine, doctor visits, no doctor visits. There's options for use of technology, but to, the, the quick answer to your question is we didn't go into an extensive definition for the purposes of the survey. No, but I'm going to make an inference just for, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, it sounds like when you're saying flexibility, it's the how, not the what. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Thanks. Yes. It's the how. And we'll talk about travel uh, quite a bit later on in the, in the points that I go through. Uh, what about, um, uh, financial impact? How did that pop up on the list? So financial benefits being favorable, that was also 31% uh, of respondents indicated that was a reason why they joined. And uh, it, it was just below. It's, it's one of the key drivers. And if you actually look at the population that, that has not participated in a trial, one of the key incentives for them to participate is the financial compensation. So it, it's no surprise that having an economic benefit from the trial is a key is compelling and we'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the the, the date i'm going to go through and that can certainly be a mixed story right well we we may have some people here who've been in or considering healthy volunteer studies where you know the participation is linked to some very reasonable financial compensation for mm -hmm. their time. Um, for others with a chronic disease, the financial impact might be that um, they're not um, uh, paying for certain procedures or maybe have better access to some uh, care or follow-up than they might have otherwise. Financial <coughs> benefits, so that's, these, are, these are interesting to think about. But I'll let you keep going, John, because yeah, so, I, I so, think you got a lot here. 
Yeah, so continuing along, we also asked the general population why they haven't participated in the clinical trial. And not surprisingly, about about 30% indicated they had concerns over safety. There's a, a huge educational component to trial participation that we know. And there's a portion, about a quarter, that really have never had the need to participate. So taking safety and lack of need out of the equation, the, surprisingly, if you look at a few reasons why people aren't participating, 45% of respondents indicated they haven't participated because the requirements were inconvenient, they were inflexible, or required travel. Pretty compelling in terms of uh, how decentralized approaches can really help facilitate moving that needle towards uh, general population participation in clinical trials. 45%. That's a big one. So continuing on, we, we then moved into the actual trial participants and, and explored the use of technology. And we found that um, in general, we wanted to understand how frequently the trial participants are using technology. That could be a poor online portal, using a smartphone device or tablet, uh, doing chat online with, with someone related to the trial. And we found that uh, 70 to 80% of the respondents in trials are using technology at least once per week. And specifically, and, and that ranges because we're looking at different channels or modalities, and specifically, uh, in terms of how easy the technology is to use, 75 to 80% of respondents across the board said the technology is easy to use. So again, as we think about greater implementation of, of technology and decent tech, technology enabled decentralized approaches, usability is very important and, and a key consideration. And what we're seeing in this research is the general population or the trial participant population is 80% uh, is saying it's easy to use. So we're up the curve, so to speak, and uh, the population's ready to use technology. So that was interesting as well. And putting some hard data around that was, was good. Now, specifically, we also looked at various types of technology. So things like online portals, smartphones, devices, um, Bluetooth enabled uh, equipment or, or devices that measure uh, uh, output, various, you know, cardiac output, things like that, steps, respiration, blood pressure, things like that. And we found, not surprisingly, I guess, that familiar technology is key. So things like smartphone devices, web portals, online chat, those were greatly preferred by the trial participants in terms of being easy to use and preferred over things like wearing a Bluetooth device, having to upload data to the cloud. So the implication is as you look at greater use of decentralized approaches and strategies and trials, it's key to include the familiar uh, forms of technology. And we did see some difference in terms of the perceived ease of use and things like that. So that was one of the other takeaways as well. And then lastly, I'll, I'll pause and, and bring one more point. We also looked at how the technology is impacting satisfaction and specifically what type of technology or decentralized approaches are having the greatest impact on patient satisfaction in clinical trials. And what we saw was that any, any form of decentralized or online access to care has the greatest impact on satisfaction. So online chat with a nurse or healthcare provider or representative from the trial, that was the top scoring greatest impact on satisfaction decentralized approach. Uh, followed by telemedicine visits with their physician or healthcare provider, those really ranked at the at the very top. Uh, on the technology side, just below that was use of a smartphone or tablet device. So the the big three: online chat, telemedicine visit, and use of a a phone or tablet device to as part of the trial participation. Those are the three big three that impact patient satisfaction the most from a decentralized perspective.
Oh, that is really fascinating, right? It really speaks to invalidates the belief that patients value their time and intersection with the investigator site, their staff, the investigators themselves, the, the, the opportunity for technology and these new approaches to enrich that rather than um, supplant it. That, yeah, and, right. We're using we're using these tools to to drive better access to the people that they trust. Yes, and then specifically, and this is probably you probably will uh, surmise this at the opposite end in terms of what was least convenient or had the lowest impact on satisfaction was travel to their physician office or travel to a laboratory. So again, we're going to have this recurring theme that travel is less convenient. It drives less satisfaction. Uh, it's less flexible. And again, there are so many indicators just pointing to acceptance and preference for decentralized approaches to clinical trials. And it's interesting. We actually did a sub-analysis of the data, and we found that for those folks who have to travel at least once per week for their clinical trial versus those folks who travel once per month or less, uh, there's a greater impact in terms of satisfaction with decentralized approaches or elements. So to just repeat that again, when trial participants have to travel more for their trial, decentralized approaches have a greater positive impact on satisfaction than folks who travel infrequently. So yet another sub-analysis just reinforcing the importance of decentralized approaches and how uh, it's really beneficial and improves satisfaction with the experience, especially in folks who travel or have less convenience in their trial. You know, so many of us want to use these tools and places in the portfolio where they'll make the biggest impact. And so that's a really interesting additional filter for study teams and leaders to use when triaging their portfolio to understand which studies they should prioritize with these approaches. Mm -hmm. So on the question of subset analysis, John, and I'm predicting this may come when we reset the room and open up the stage, but any chance you looked at whether or not there was a difference in those patient preferences based on age? Yes, we did. And not surprisingly, we found preference for decentralized approaches and specifically technology. There's a direct correlation between decreasing age. So the younger the participant, the more favorable the decentralized approach and technology is. Uh, not surprising, right? They're much more familiar and they've grown up with technology uh, versus the elder, the, the, the oldest demographic or group age population brackets that we looked at. It's not that the elderly or the oldest brackets were had a, a negative view of technology and decentralized approach, but we just saw a, a direct relationship between uh, young age and preference for technology and decentralized approaches. Thanks. Perfect. Mm -hmm. John, were there any other, just to piggyback on that, any other subsets that you were able to look at, whether U.S. versus Europe, or given even just some of the diversity of race and ethnicity, anywhere else that things looked different? You know, we, we I'm sure we have that information and for the purposes of what we put out, we didn't go to that level. And in fact, uh, we are, you know, we, we did make this report available to many of our clients and, and they are, they have received the, the raw data because they're going to do that sub sub analysis. But uh, really, the the participant, non-participant, and the age, those were really the key uh, sub-analyses that we did for the report. But it's not to say those others could, couldn't be done. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is uh, TGFDCT, our gathering on Fridays on Clubhouse. We gather here every Friday to cover different topics related to decentralized clinical trials. And today's topic, we're looking at some new research with John Meyer from the Life Science Strategy Group. John has been surveying, uh, running some uh, studies, looking at patient preferences. And today is an opportunity to hear some of his highlights and takeaways share your questions, share your experiences.
John, let's keep going with some yeah. of the other findings and then we'll open up the room. Yeah, I just have two or three more points to make. So lastly, we wanted to look at future participation. So more of the, the future looking questions. And we asked respondents, these are trial participants again, you know, considering these decentralized approaches and, and elements that were in your clinical trials, which had the greatest impact on your on your willingness to participate again in the future? And 93% of respondents indicated that having a nurse come to their home and visit them during the trial had the greatest impact on their willingness to participate. That was followed by about 83% of participants that said the ability to use a smartphone or their or a tablet. 82% uh, said telemedicine and 81% said online patient portal. So those were really the big ones. Um, In-home treatments administered by a nurse or caregiver was also high scoring as was mailing the treatment to their home. So those were the, the, the highest and most positive or, or well-received elements or decentralized components that are driving willingness to participate in the future. Those are the big ones. We also, lastly, we, we also, just to, to conclude, we looked at the general population and we said, you know, you haven't participated in a trial, but there's all these decentralized strategies and, and um, elements that are being introduced to trials. <clears throat> would you prefer to have more of these in clinical trials and would you be more likely to participate? Or would you rather not have them and have trials, you know, be more traditional where they're person-to-person -person interactions and you're going to the physician office. And when you look at the general population, 68% would either prefer or strongly prefer to have decentralized elements or more decentralized elements incorporated into clinical trials. So, you know, in conclusion, there's a very clear signal from the population as well as those that, from, from those that have participated as well as those that have not, that they're looking forward to and, and requesting more decentralized elements in clinical trials. So technology is not a burden. It's easy to use. It makes life more convenient and it will make patients and the general population more willing to participate. Uh, so interesting, John. And, um, sorry, Craig. It aligns to a much smaller study that we did retrospectively on a very specific population in a study last year. But the two overriding themes that align here are, number one, people actually cited the accessibility of the trial through technology as a key driver to being able to participate. That was one thing. So it was a scale of one to five, and I forget the actual numbers, but about 80% or more said 4.5 or higher. And then more importantly, or what gave me hope was 95% of the respondents said they would be willing to participate in a trial if similar methods were offered. Much mm -hmm. smaller, but very aligned, I think. And what's interesting to me is, I, to your point, I don't think a lot of people are asking these questions as part of the trial experience yet. So I want your advice on that. when when there's a break and after other people have asked their questions. Sure. So just the last comment here, what are the implications of this research on clinical trial design and what can we take away from this research? Number one, and I, I really haven't spoken to this very much, that patients still do want the person-to-person -person, uh, interaction with their healthcare provider in, and physician uh, in person, in the office, absolutely. But adding decentralized elements makes things more flexible and, and flexibility is, is key. But looking at future design, so assuming those elements to some degree stay, number one, some form of in-home care, in-home nurse visit, uh, that's going to be very beneficial to the success of the trial and participation. Number two, Decentralized elements and approaches are a fantastic way to make trials more convenient and should be incorporated. And specifically, from the non-technology perspective, things like um, 
that in-home visit, mailing therapies to the home, those are big high impact on satisfaction and willingness to participate. And from a technology perspective, things like familiar technology, so online portals, smartphone and tablet use, uh, chat with representatives from their healthcare provider or the site or the trial uh, sponsor, that's very effective as well. And, and the telemedicine visits periodically with the healthcare provider. Those are the big takeaways and keys that, that should be in consideration for to, to maximize uh, flexibility and convenience for the patient as well as to drive greater participation. That's fabulous. Hey, um, John, you had mentioned earlier this number 68% of the folks surveyed um, mm -hmm. uh, who would consider a future trial would like to see uh, more in-home elements. What about that other 32? Were these people kind of neutral on the topic? Were they opposed and disinterested to more things in home? Yeah, so it's it's the options we gave respondents. It was a five-point Likert scale with um, strongly prefer fewer elements at one extreme of one and a five would strongly prefer more elements. So the percent of respondents that indicated they would prefer fewer or strongly prefer fewer in-home or decentralized elements was only 15% really. So, and specifically only 5% of the population indicated they would strongly prefer fewer in-home or decentralized elements. So it's actually a pretty small portion. There was, there was about 15% of the population that had no preference for either more or, or less. That is really a fascinating finding because, you know, I, I've been a, a believer in this future of optionality and choice and letting people have say in large part because I want to see us open more doors and not create new doors that marginalize some people and have old doors that marginalize other people. But it's fascinating to see the. it seems like based on other data we've seen in the past that perhaps the percent of folks that are disinterested in things in the home is shrinking, that more people are moving into this, I have no preference, or I prefer things um, in the home. I do think this theme of optionality and choice will prevail in the very near term, but it, it is going to be interesting to see if we are seeing an increasing shift around, um, in particular among those who have historically been um, somewhat averse to things happening in their home. Agreed. This this was not a longitudinal study. This was our first pass at this, but it's the, the door the door is open to looking at this in the future at some point. But um, yeah, very interesting findings. You know, it, a lot of it confirms what we believe and what we knew, but we lacked any real data, and that was the really the the reason why we went out and collected this information because we couldn't find any concrete numbers or data to to really support our feeling that there was growing preference for decentralized elements of clinical trials. Archana, it's great to have you here. It's always good to uh, to see you, to hear your voice. Um, I noticed your uh, your question in the chat had uh, asked about maybe some of the race-ethnic race, differences around in-home, and, and I know that John's current data set's a little limited in that ability to segment. But I thought maybe, Archana, you could share some of your perspective or experience with some of the differences one might expect around race, ethnicity, and participation in the home. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Uh, can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. Um, good morning from sunny California for a change after a bout of long rains, everybody. Um, it's glad to be on stage here. Um, my name is Archana Sa, and I am a strategy advisor and consultant in the industry. Um, I've spent the past 30 years, you know, in various clinical development as well as digital health, um, including decentralized space. And I was very curious about the research that was presented by John, especially regarding home health nursing. The reason I, um, I want to dig a little bit deeper in this area, because in my experience, what I have seen is a strong ethnicity divide between preference versus non-preference on that particular topic. And as I mentioned in the chat, um, 
several Asian communities I've seen, they prefer home health nursing, whereas African-Americans ethnicity um, is, you know, is often is very hesitant to have strangers come into their home um, and, and hence to not prefer home health nursing. I, I understand from Craig's comment that your data may not have a lot of demarcation between these, uh, a strong high percentage to, to sort of solidly answer that question. But I was just curious to gather your thoughts. Uh, um, I, I firmly believe optionality is the way to go in the industry, both from a sponsor perspective, but as well as from a patient preference perspective. The key here is um, the complications it involves um, when it comes to implementation and execution of those optionality, both at the study level plus at the visit level as well. And I'm just very curious if you, um, in your other discussions, wider discussions outside of this survey, if you have any thoughts on, on that topic as well. Yeah, so that's a great question. We, we had about 11% Black or African-American representation, 5% Asian representation in our sample. So uh, we didn't really have a lot of power uh, in terms of numbers to, to go into a, a, a deep analysis. It was 80% white representation. So, you know, we, we really didn't dig into it, but I would agree with you that there are likely to be ethnic and race differences in terms of preferences for things like in-home nurse visits or care. So I, I agree. And, and again, the, the premise that we have is, is decentralized approaches. Like you've said, they, they provide options and flexibility. And as you've said, there should be uh, the option for in-person versus the decentralized approaches and in, in trial participation. But the simple answer is we just, we didn't cut it based, the, based upon race or ethnicity, just given we had a, a very large uh, white or Caucasian representation. Yeah, and, and when I think about the patient preference and uh, regulars of this clubhouse know I'm very passionate about the oncology area and especially in this area where, and if you look at clinicaltrials.gov, a majority of the trials are in oncology. The need for this, um, you know, from a patient preference plus patient needs, I would, I would specify the word needs, especially in this therapeutic area, is precisely that, to offer that optionality, given how the patient might be uh, feeling based on their side effects or experience or during ongoing treatment. So my call out to all the listeners as, you know, today would be, let's do more when it comes to oncology to bring that optionality, to bring that choice to the patient and the preference. Um, and to sponsor especially to plan your trials such that you are thinking about providing that optionality right from your protocol study design itself. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I'd love to see your work published somewhere to, for us to dig deeper into it. So so just a quick point on that. And while the, the clinical development pipeline is predominantly oncology, when you look at the mega trials, they're not oncology, right? So as a result, our respondent population by therapeutic or disease area in this report among the 360 trial participants, 21% infectious disease and vaccines, 21% allergy, 9% CNS, 6% psychiatry, 5% dermatology. Oncology in this particular case only represented, uh, where is it? Uh, 3% of the respondents. So it's interesting because oncology gets so much voice and I'm, I'm not um, downplaying the importance of oncology, but um, you, you may not, it may not just be as, as top of mind that there are these very large primary care indications with mega, mega trials and that comprises a very large portion of the patient and participant population. Thanks so much. Great conversation. And I will call out um, to Archana's point, it was the 2019 CISCRIP Perceptions and Insights study that had shown that 79% indicated that home nursing visits would make participation in a trial somewhat or very appealing. Um, and in their study, when they did segment, this is a couple of years ago now, but when they did segment by race, ethnicity, you did see that separation. 85% of black respondents favoring home nursing visits to make a study more appealing, 
only 66% of Asian respondents indicating the same. And so quite a, quite a range there for, for future research to continue to better understand and also why we want to make sure that we're creating these types of options if we want to make sure that all representative populations are able to, uh, to be a part of research. Let's, uh, let's turn now to our friend Richie Khan. Richie, I saw you were there in the audience. I was curious, you spent, why don't you introduce yourself for folks that don't know you, Richie, but um, I'm sure that some of this conversation around data uh, quantifying perceptions and preferences has to be interesting. I'll be curious to, to see how much resonates with your experiences or uh, how is this clicking with you, Richie? Yeah, thanks so much for pulling me up on stage, Craig. Happy New Year, everybody. Wonderful to hear some familiar faces, uh, hear some familiar voices, I should say. My name is Richie Khan. I am not only a clinical trial participant myself, um, but a patient advocate, co-founder, and principal of Canary Advisors. What we do is truly really make sure that clinical trial designs, commercialization strategies are a good fit for patient preferences, wants, and needs. Also spent some time in the decentralized clinical trial space where I focused on patient experience and patient preferences. And one of the things that I think comes up often, you know, there is no one silver bullet. There's never one right size, one size fits all approach. It is all about that optionality. But one of the things I kept thinking about uh, as John was chatting, as Archana was chatting, I think a lot of these differences are also very particular to indications in therapeutic areas as far as preferences. I've had a number of conversations with patients and potential participants thinking about sickle cell trials. And one of the conversations that stood out to me was talking with a few patients. We talked about in-home assessments to make it easier, particularly if a clinical trial site's not close by your home. And one of my friends kind of said, well, you know, look, when I am feeling unwell, I'm exhausted, I feel like I'm not taking care of myself and my home the way I would like to. I don't want some home health nurse coming in who doesn't know me. I feel like people are going to judge me. Right. So they appreciated the flexibility. They really enjoyed the ability to have that optionality. They definitely encouraged us to think through these considerations during clinical trial design. But they said, for me, it's it's not the approach that would make sense. And that was something I heard over and over from a number of individuals in a number of different indications in therapeutic areas. So I just wanted to add that point, Craig. I think, you know, it, it just behooves everyone to continue doing more and more research to continue checking with patients, preferences change over time. And certainly preferences that might've been um, described or professed in 2021, early 2022, probably change as the course of the pandemic uh, changes as well. John, did you see any clues in your research around therapeutic area differences, disease area differences? I know this was kind of a, a general population, although, some that had been in clinical trials before might have been in for a disease area. Are there any clues you came across? Yeah, again, I, I wish I had more for you because the data are there to subsegment, especially if you look at some of the disease areas, because we did collect that information for each respondent. Uh, but we didn't cut the data based upon disease area. But so I, I, I can't really pull any nuggets out for you. Fair enough, but a great call out. Thank you so much, Richie. Hey, John, one question I see in the chat. Do you anticipate doing surveys like these or have you done surveys in general that look more at physician and investigator uh, preferences? So it, it's interesting. That's an interesting question. And as a consultancy that works for many of the large, you know, top clinical CROs, they obviously want to stay in touch and in tune with the sites and the investigators and the support staff. So yes, we've done a lot of research with them on a variety of topics. And I think that the takeaway I can, I can say, the, the umbrella takeaway about <clears throat> decentralization and technology is the challenge the sites face are uh, the variety and the, the disparate platforms and technologies they have to use. You know, we talked to one site and they have 15 different iPads 
or 15 or 20 different you know tablet devices they have to use for their clinical trials and they're all separate they have to learn new techniques and and workflows for every clinical trial they do and the big takeaway is the sites like technology they like the decentralized options and flexibility but they need centra- centralization and standardization they they need it to be simplified because while it is enabling them to be more responsive to patients and to have greater touch points, it's causing a lot of complexity and added challenge and workflow to just maintain the technology and keep track of the technology and learn the technology. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword for the sites. Well, you know, it's a great call out that you're making there, John. You know, I think some create this perception that sites are reluctant or resistant to X or to Y. Look, sites, staff, just like most people we talk to that work and have chosen to make a career in this space, want to do right by patients, by participants. And certainly they do. They're in the front lines with them every day of the week. Um, And interestingly, based on the data that you shared earlier, John, when we talk to patients, the feedback seems to be very strong signal that, hey, our favorite use of these tools is to create better connections with site staff and with investigators, video, chat, other ways that I can have more connection with people, not doing away with connection with people. The challenge, the resistance that uh, seems to underlie is the craziness of being thrown study-specific technology uh, into environments that are running lots of different studies and have sometimes their own processes and their own tools. Uh, So it's a great call out and reminder to keep us grounded on, yeah, look, there are real and legitimate and fair pain points at the site, but let's not lose sight of where those pain points reside and what they're resistant to or extrapolated into, you know, just a general resistance to the category. They want these things. They want it done right. Mm-hmm. Jane, you had another question for John. I wanted to make sure we came back to. Yeah, I'm curious to know your thoughts about whether or not you have solved for how to collect this information within study or whether or not you think that's valuable because you approached a meta analysis. I'm curious about the within study analysis too. Um, I want to make sure I understand your question. Maybe you could reward it a bit. Sure. So one thing we haven't done a lot of in trials to date is actually ask participants about their experience during the trial, during the study. Yes. Yeah. So, I think the, the way that's captured, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there can be incorporation of those types of questions in, into the patient diary. So they're capturing that output and that feedback during the trial, but we didn't really explore that in our survey. Yeah, see, I'm a little worried about doing that in a patient diary because then it could go into the clinical data set. But I'm just curious, and thank you for clarifying. It's a mission I'm on elsewhere, so I wanted to pick mm-hmm. your brain. Yeah, I, I wish I had. I, sorry, I don't have much more for you. John, where does this uh, research go next for you? What, uh, wh- where are you pointing next based on the feedback you've heard so far with the different clients and customers you've been engaging? Well, it's interesting. One of our CRO clients, like the comments that were made by Archana, has interest in looking more into diversity and some of the the differences in terms of receptivity and preference for decentralized approaches based upon race and ethnicity. So that's one area that one of our clients uh, will probably be pursuing with us in the in this 2023 year. And then uh, this report that we published was very well received by our clients. So we will likely revisit it late this year or next year just to see if, if the needle has moved and have preferences changed like some of the comments today. It's great to hear. And one last question for you, John. I know that this is a um, an asset that is uh, is available uh, for purchase, uh, mm-hmm. the full research and access to data. Will you be publishing any of this research and making some of it more publicly available and referenceable, either an excerpt or hitting it in uh, in a peer reviewed journal or otherwise? 
You know, I don't have, we don't have any plans to, to do an extensive publication on the research, uh, just given that, you know, we are a business and we did fund all of this research and it came out of our, our pocket, so to speak. So we did sell this, this data and research to many of our clients, but uh, I think we have press released on it and we, we generally share some of the information and I'm, I'm making a lot of it uh, available through the conversation today, but I don't really have planned to do an extensive publication, but it, it's not out of the question for sure. The, um, the press release driven uh, data that was out there, I saw was picked up in a couple of channels. I will share that in, um, in my LinkedIn feed for folks. Uh, John, maybe you'll do the same and make sure people can see what data is available out there, referenceable for them. Uh, that has been put out there. Otherwise, I'm certainly grateful, uh, John, for the work you did here and for getting on stage and sharing with us. Jane, always good to see you, my friend, and Archana Richie, always great to hear your voices. For those that jumped in on the chat, like John and Jeff, uh, really appreciate your contributions over there. Um, Keep an eye on this space. Give a click on some different profiles that you found interesting or maybe some new New connections for you to keep learning in on the in-between. We're going to pick up next week on Friday, January 27th and talk about um, language learning systems. We're going to talk about ChatGPT meets DCT and what are some of the realities, some of the actual use cases that could be meaningful, or is this just all fun play to see what a chatbot can do that sounds like a human or smarter. We'll pick up again uh, the week after talking about unmet needs for decentralized trials using devices and wearables. And uh, we'll be filling in some of our upcoming weeks with more updates from our initiative teams at DTRA that are creating meaningful output, open and available for the research community. If you have ideas or uh, uh, themes you want to see us cover, make sure you let us know. Otherwise, thanks again for joining today. Enjoy your weekends.